From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, a place we get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, and a little bit of my take. I'm your host, Isaac Saul, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about New York's third congressional district, the election that happened there on Tuesday. I've got some really strong feelings about this. I'm going a little bit nuts listening to some of the media narratives and coverage around this, so um, I'm going to unload a little bit in my take today because I've got some thoughts. Uh, for those of you who missed it, yesterday we released our Valentine's Day podcast with my wife, Phoebe. The feedback to it so far has been really, really nice. Just like very thoughtful, kind notes from people who wrote in. So thank you for those of you who did that. If you guys are interested in something a little different, you can check it out. It got put on our podcast channels yesterday morning. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you listen to that and you didn't notice, we did release our daily podcast yesterday, also a few hours later. So if you're looking for some breakdowns of the Trump NATO stuff, you can just have a big tangled day, a couple hours with, with me and Tangle and go listen to those two podcasts. Without further ado, let's uh, jump in today with some quick hits. First up, Israeli forces launched a series of strikes in Lebanon. The strikes came in response to Hezbollah firing across the border at Israeli troops, killing at least one Israeli soldier and wounding seven civilians. Number two, a Georgia judge is going to consider whether to remove Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis from the election interference case against former President Trump because of a conflict of interest. Number three, one person was killed and more than 20 were injured after a shooting broke out during the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. Number four, U.S. officials reportedly have new intelligence on Russia's nuclear capabilities in space. When the intelligence was briefed to Congress yesterday, some members insisted it be declassified and made public. Number five, special counsel Robert Herr, who released a report criticizing President Biden's mental acuity, is considering testifying before Congress on his findings. Democrat Tom Suozzi winning the special election on in New York's Long Island last night, flipping the seat once held by disgraced former Congressman George Santos. That means House Republicans can now only afford two defectors in any party line vote. Despite all the attacks, despite all the lies about Tom Swazi and the squad, about Tom Swazi being the godfather of the migrant crisis, about sanctuary Swazi, despite the dirty tricks, despite the vaunted Nassau County Republican machine. We won. On Tuesday, former Democratic Congressman Tom Suozzi won a closely watched special election in New York's 3rd Congressional District, where the campaigns and outside political groups spent more than $20 million vying for a win. The election to replace former Representative George Santos, the Republican 
was between Swazi and Mazi Pillup, a registered Democrat and political newcomer who served as a Republican in Nassau County's legislature and made the southern border and immigration a centerpiece of her campaign. Swazi will now serve out the remainder of Santos's term, then run for re-election again this November. Swazi's election narrows an already razor-thin majority for Republicans in the House from 219 to 212 to 219 to 213. Thanks to three Republican vacancies in Congress, they can now afford to lose just two party votes on any bill that comes through the lower chamber. On top of its impact on the makeup of the House, the district is considered a bellwether for where the major political parties are heading into the 2024 election. New York 3, which stretches east from Queens to central Long Island, is racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, and politically diverse. President Biden won it by eight points in 2020, but Santos flipped the district back to Republicans in 2022. Last week, a Siena College poll of the district showed Swazi ahead of Pillup by four points, but Trump leading Biden by five points there. Throughout the campaign, both candidates focused on immigration and Israel. Pillup, an Ethiopian-born Jew, grew up in Israel and served in the Israeli Defense Force. She regularly insisted to audiences that she would be a staunch supporter of Israel and emphasized the need to crack down on illegal immigration and support legal immigrants like herself. Swazi, meanwhile, emphasized his centrist politics and moderate voting history in Congress, often bucking the Democratic Party on immigration and insisting on a border crackdown. Simultaneously, he told voters that it'd be more important to have another staunch Israel supporter among Democrats than among Republicans. He also questioned Biden's 2024 candidacy, even telling local reporters he thought Biden is too old and wasn't sure he'd ultimately be the nominee. Swazi also hammered Pillup on abortion with advertisements that framed her as an anti-abortion extremist. Pillup has opposed a national abortion ban, but campaign material from Democrats associated her with a proposal to support a ban on abortions with no exceptions for rape or incest. Pillup, meanwhile, has been cagey about her support for Trump, evading questions about whether she voted for him in 2020. With polls showing the race in a statistical dead heat heading into the election, a last-minute winter storm added another wrinkle to the already complex race. Democrats who had emphasized early voting were confident they won the early electorate. In the end, turnout was low and the race wasn't very close, with Swazi winning by nearly 8 percentage points and over 13,000 votes. Today, we're going to take a look at some commentary about what this race means from the left and the right, and then my take. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. First up, we'll start with what the left is saying. The left is heartened by Swazi's victory, but acknowledges he'll face another tough race for the seat in November. Some say President Biden should emulate Swazi's campaign strategy on crime and immigration. Others contend the race was still too close for comfort given Swazi's funding advantage. In the New York Times, Gail Collins said Tom Swazi makes Democrats look good for a New York minute. Swazi hardly super-embraced President Biden, but he was certainly less standoffish about his party's leader than Pillup, Collins wrote. This was truly a big Biden win. Congressional races are mainly about the party and its leaders. The candidates are sometimes very, very colorful or very, very scary. But the only thing that really matters is which side has the most votes. Thanks to the folks in New York's 3rd Congressional District, the Republicans' edge in the House is now even itsy-bitsier. A mere three irritable members are enough to ruin any plan. Let's give the man credit and a little time to enjoy his victory, since the 3rd District is going to look very different in November 
when Swazi will run for re-election, Collins added. The only thing you need to dwell on right now, people, is that Democrats want another seat in the House. When Swazi is sworn in, the Republicans will have a squeaky majority of 219 to 213, making life even more miserable for House Speaker Mike Boring isn't necessarily bad, Johnson. In The Hill, Steve Israel, who represented New York 3 from 2013 to 2017, suggested Democrats' New York 3 special election win shows Biden's path to victory. How did Democrats turn the red tide in New York 3, and how can Biden do the same as his polls show alarming cracks in the Democratic coalition heading into 2024, Israel asked? The answer is three-pronged. First, Swazi succeeded in meeting voters where they were, validating their fears on crime and immigration. Second, he rebutted Phillips' attacks by advancing common-sense bipartisan solutions. Third, he called out Republican extremism and delineated the clear risks it poses to the public. If President Biden can do these three things, he can reassemble the coalition that propelled him to office in 2020. Party leaders must talk about the fact that they're serious about solving the problems Americans are most concerned about, from inflation to the border. It's Republicans who are interested in playing politics, whether by rooting openly for a recession or scuttling a bipartisan deal that would have passed the strongest border security measures in decades. And they must make the case that Republican extremism, from abortion to NATO, is a clear and present danger to the American people. In Slate, Alexander Salmon said Democrats have themselves a victory in New York, but they also have a problem. This race should have been a slam dunk. Running to replace Santos, who became one of just six representatives to ever be expelled from Congress and just the third since the Civil War, made for a dream opportunity for Democrats, Salmon wrote. And yet, up until the election day, polling showed a race so tight it was within the margin of error. This, despite massive name recognition advantage for the Democratic candidate, Swazi, who has already represented this district in Congress and who had a two-to-one spending advantage to boot. Good thing for Democrats that a rare election day snowstorm broke in their favor. Waiting for the National Party to airdrop a spending advantage of millions of dollars is not a sustainable way to win elections. The difficulty of this win and the price tag show the cost of the New York State Democratic Party's refusal to reconcile with the failures of the party apparatus after the 2022 midterms. The district will also have to go back to the polls for this same race in November. How many millions will that cost? All right, that is it for the left is saying, which brings us to what the right is saying. The right is disappointed by the result and pins the bulk of blame on House Republicans. Some push back on the narrative that Swazi's win signals anything about Biden's prospects. Others worry that Democrats' superior voter turnout infrastructure will continue to win themselves elections. The New York Sun editorial board wrote that Democrats might not have much to celebrate, but the Republicans have even less. Speaker Johnson is eager to put the gloss on the GOP's defeat in this election to replace George Santos as in no way a bellwether for November's election. Wishful thinking, we say. Better that Mr. Johnson and company take the victory of a fairly moderate Democrat as an alarm bell. The House GOP, which in 2023 acceded power with high hopes for substantive reform, has degenerated into dysfunction and voters are noticing, the board said. Swazi managed to flip the script on Republicans on immigration, capitalizing on the GOP's bait-and-switch on a border deal. House Republicans, for their part, seem intent instead on pursuing the president and his family in Javert-like investigations that show every sign of traversing the constitutional ban on bills of attainder, the board wrote. Let the outcome in the 3rd District be a teachable moment for conservatives who look to House Republicans for leadership. 
there is still time to right the ship. But if Mr. Johnson and his caucus persist on their present course, they should brace for a return in 2025 to minority status, a setback that would be largely self-imposed. In hot air, Ed Morrissey wondered, did NY's special election unlock 2024 for Democrats? The race in the D-plus-2 district wasn't terribly close, but it wasn't a blowout either. Swazi defeated Mozzie Pillup 53.9% to 46.1%, at least as of the count early this morning. Assuming that gap doesn't expand, it's not even Swazi's most impressive performance in New York 3, Morrissey said. Still, it's good enough to win and is evidence that New York 3 returned to form. It also provides evidence that Santos lucked out in 2022. Swazi's retirement and Lee Zeldin's surprisingly strong challenge against Kathy Hochul in the gubernatorial race made the difference in that cycle. Having an incumbent-ish and prominent Democrat come in and beat an unknown Republican in a D-plus-2 district, a Republican candidate still registered as a Democrat, by the way, by seven points isn't exactly a sign of strength or renewal. It looks more like chickens coming home to roost at worst. On the plus side, this might actually convince Democrats to run on Biden's record regarding immigration and the border crisis. If that's the lesson they take from last night's special election, well, pass the popcorn. In The Federalist, Sean Fleetwood asks, how many elections must high-polling Republicans lose to learn ballots matter more than votes? Swazi and other Democrats' recent victories raised the question, if Biden is deeply unpopular among the American electorate, how do Republicans keep losing what should be winnable elections, Fleetwood wrote. While lack of any concrete vision for the future of the country may be partly to blame, another theory explaining Republicans' election failures can be found in the changes to election procedures enacted in 2020. Democrats realize they don't have to focus on election day turnout to win elections. They only need to bank enough mail-in ballots during early voting to bring home the bacon. In the years since 2020, the Democrat election machine has methodically orchestrated a nationwide effort designed to capitalize on this strategy and exploit existing mail-in voting laws, Fleetwood said. The reality is that Republicans will continue to lose elections unless they change the laws where they hold power or figure out a way to compete with Democrats' election machine. Until then, using polls and public opinion surveys to predict election outcomes will remain meaningless. All right, that is it for what the left and the right are saying, which brings us to my take. So Swazi's win here, to me, is actually very important and part of a much larger trend. If Republicans want to tell themselves a story to calm the nerves, this is the best I can come up with. Swazi had name recognition and better funding. He won roughly by Joe Biden's margin over Donald Trump in the district in 2020. George Santos was a historically embarrassing representative and dragged the party's local reputation down with him. Democrats voted disproportionately early, and then there was a snowstorm. Pillup, the Republican, is pretty new to a race like this and did not run a well-organized campaign where she got in front of voters. In fact, she was not particularly accessible and wasn't really able to articulate a clear solution-oriented plan. Again, if Republicans want to ignore this result, that is what they can tell themselves. But here's a dose of reality. Since Roe v. Wade fell and with Trump as the face of the party, Republicans have underperformed in almost every meaningful election that was not a foregone conclusion for almost four years. This is not an exaggeration. The party in the White House typically loses 28 House seats and four Senate seats in midterm elections on average. 
In 2022, Democrats shocked everyone by picking up a Senate seat and keeping Republicans' House majority so narrow, they have since spent most of their time fighting amongst each other and failing to pass legislation supported by majorities of their own party. Democrats succeeded in 2022 by running on abortion and against Trump-approved candidates in purple districts and states. Last April, Democrats won a state Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin that was considered a toss-up. Then in August, Democrats won an Ohio special election to reject a ballot measure that would have made it more difficult to enshrine abortion rights into law. Then in November, Democrats effectively swept every competitive race. They flipped Virginia's House delegation blue, passed a constitutional amendment in Ohio to ensure access to abortion, re-elected a Democratic governor in Kentucky and improved his margins, sat a liberal justice on the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, and won a congressional special election in Rhode Island. And again, in another special election last month, Democrats flipped a Florida House seat. Democrats have also won a number of less followed but signal latent seats across the country. They flipped countless school board seats in swing states, completed a seismic shift flip of a mayor's seat in Colorado Springs. Also in Colorado, Representative Lauren Boebert, who's become a household Republican name, had to flee her district and run somewhere else because it looked like she was going to lose. Democrats flipped a mayoral seat in Jacksonville and picked up a seat in New Jersey's state legislature. Not many people are talking about it, but the same day they won New York 3, they also retained their slim majority in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives by winning a Bucks County seat where I grew up, a traditional bellwether county in a bellwether state that is now trending left. On top of all of this, Democrats are out fundraising Republicans so badly that the RNC is forcing out its chair. All of this is happening at a time when Biden's approval numbers are terrible, economic sentiment is poor, Biden's mental fitness is becoming a massive problem, the border is in crisis, and the world feels unsteady as wars rage on in Ukraine and Gaza. And yet, Democrats are simply cleaning Republicans' clocks. Sean Fleetwood's piece under what the right is saying is one of the few that seems attached to this reality. I'm not opinionating here. These are the facts. The results are telling this story, not me, and conservatives need to wake up. All the polls showing Biden's low approval, all the media narratives about the border or Israel, and all the excuses about poor candidates or extraneous issues like a winter storm don't change the fact that Republicans just keep losing these elections. And while most on the right continue to refuse to acknowledge their losing streak, many in the media, including most people on the left, can't stop gnashing their teeth over how weak the Democrats are. Reading the coverage of this election made me feel like I was losing my mind. One of the things I regularly tell people who question the results of the 2020 election, people who can't believe that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by 7 million votes, is to just look around. Look at what has happened since then. That result is consistent with everything we have seen in bellwether counties like this one for the last four years. Nobody is talking about election fraud in New York 3 or in Bucks County or in the 2022 midterms or the 2021 and 2023 special elections because there very obviously wasn't, at least not any significant election fraud as most elections have some instances of voter fraud. Yet Republicans lost those races by similar margins and on the backs of similar voters as they lost 2020. They are losing independents. They are losing moderate Republicans. They are losing suburban women. Republicans have no response to Democrats on abortion. Swazi just drew a map for how Democrats can win in tough swing districts where a Republican opponent is making the border crisis the primary issue. Move to the center on immigration, criticize Republicans for not supporting the bipartisan Senate-negotiated border bill, and then pivot to abortion. Game, set, match. 
We are all going to memory hole it now, but a few days before this race, both conservatives and liberal pundits were preparing for a Republican win. The Hill ran a headline about Democrats moving to, quote, avoid an embarrassing defeat in the district. CNN said Democrats are, quote, scrambling to stave off defeat. The New York Times published a piece about a GOP revival in New York 3. The Federalists interviewed Pillup and published an entire story about how the race was going to be about the border crisis. National Review called the district an immigration bellwether and centered the story on Democrats' underperformance in New York in 2022, which was basically their only underperformance anywhere in the last four years. And then, this race wasn't close. Swazi had a four-point lead in the final polls, then doubled it in the ballot box. When this happens to Republicans' favor, everyone in the media freaks out about whether polls are underrepresenting Trump and Republican voters. Yet very few people are asking whether Democratic enthusiasm is being undercounted. But they should be, because Democrats keep outperforming the polls and the narratives. There is a tough reality here that the GOP has to deal with before 2024 if it wants to retake the Senate, defend the House, and re-elect Trump. They are losing competitive elections. They are not changing their strategy, and the face of their party is very unpopular. They do not have a palatable message on abortion, let alone a winning one. They are no longer negotiating on a solution to the border, and they are following Trump's lead on every national issue, despite the fact his name hurts them in general elections and competitive races. To repeat, this is all happening at a time when a historically unpopular Democrat whose mental fitness is being questioned sits in the White House, while economic sentiment is poor or stubbornly mediocre at best, while the border is in crisis, and while two major wars are being live-streamed across the globe. This is all happening before any of the big Trump trials. This is all happening without some redrawn congressional maps in states where Democrats have gotten favorable rulings and are gearing up to gerrymander. If any of those issues turn in Democrats' favor between now and November, the hole Republicans are in will just get deeper. The only question now is this. Is the GOP ready to try something new? If not, we can expect more of the same. We'll be right back after this quick break. All right, that is it for my take, which brings us to your questions answered. This one's from Tim in St. Augustine, Florida. Tim said, a lot can happen between now and November. Biden's health is frail and can change overnight. Trump's entangled legal mess could drag through the summer with verdicts only weeks before November 3rd. Plus, Trump really is more emboldened than ever with his off-the-cuff comments. He could quite possibly derail himself at any moment. So play along with me. If I'm right, who will the RNC and DNC decide to back? Okay, Tim from St. Augustine, Florida. So I'm going to lump this question in with the one from Steve from Michigan, who wanted more from our answer earlier this week to the question of what would happen if either candidate were to die after the primaries, but before the election. We answered almost that exact question in December, with the short answer being, the party isn't required to choose the candidate's VP but they'd open up the convention nomination process and the candidate's VP will be the front runner and expected nominee. I'll also add the same caveat. I wouldn't bank on this happening. It's not very likely that either candidate withdraws from the race or dies before Inauguration Day, just based purely on numbers alone. It's way more likely that the next president dies while in office. There are 264 days between now and Election Day, but a four-year term is 1,460 days long. But sure, I will play along. 
For the DNC, I believe they'll simply advance their VP pick as the party's nominee, which means Kamala Harris. Whether you approve of her or not, and it's likely you don't since her approval rating is 37% below both Biden's approval rating and Trump's favorability rating, there have been only reaffirming signals from the Biden camp that they're going to run Harris with Biden in November. As for the RNC, it's still an open question who Trump's running mate is going to be. When we fielded that question, I predicted Tim Scott as my likely choice. Right now, that prediction is looking pretty good. However, I think Scott might be a weaker candidate with no Trump. So if Trump is removed from the ticket, I could see the RNC's delegation to pick someone else to take Trump's spot. I think maybe Ron DeSantis is up there in that conversation. Despite his weaker election performance, I do think he is the closest to Trump on a lot of issues and the most likely to rally the base. But I'll say again, this is all hypothetical, and I don't think we're going to see anything other than Biden and Trump in November. All right, that is it for your questions answered, which brings us to our under the radar section. Yesterday, the House GOP quietly postponed a vote on the reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Security Act, the spy powers bill that allows intelligence services to monitor foreigners. In two months, the controversial program, which sometimes results in warrantless monitoring of Americans, will expire. Republicans can't reach an agreement on floor amendments, though, so House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, has to take the bill back to the negotiating table. The latest punt is creating increased frustration with Johnson. One congressional aide told Politico that, quote, the one universal consensus left-right hawk-dove reformer is that Johnson has no idea what he's doing. Politico has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, next up is our numbers section. The amount spent by Democrats on advertising for the New York 3 special election is $13.8 million. The amount spent by Republicans on advertising for the special election was $8.1 million. The approximate number of people who voted early in person in the special election was 80,000. The approximate number of mail-in ballots cast in the special election was 13,000. The approximate percentage of active registered voters who are Democrats in New York 3 is 39%. The approximate percentage of active registered voters who are Republicans in New York 3 is 28%. The median household income in New York 3 in 2022, the highest of any congressional district in New York, is $130,679. All right, and last but not least, our Have a Nice Day section. In a case of paying it forward, Derek Brown shared a story of generosity with his classroom of elementary school students in Phoenix, Arizona. The story was of an anonymous, wealthy, secret Santa who gave out $30,000 and $100 bills to strangers living on tribal lands in southeastern Arizona. Brown's students resonated with the story, working with local businesses to raise $8,000 of their own, and then similarly gave it away to strangers, people like Deirdre Taylor, who had just been diagnosed with cancer and was down to her last 20 bucks. Thank you so very much. You guys are amazing, Taylor told them. CBS News has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. A quick reminder, tomorrow's Friday. That means if you want to get a Friday edition newsletter in your inbox, you have to become a Tangle member. You can do that by going to readtangle.com. 
and clicking membership and becoming a member. Also, keep an ear out for Sunday. We're going to be trying to release these podcasts with me and Ari every Sunday where we talk about our Friday edition. We wrap up the week. We chat about whatever breaking news is happening. We're going to be sitting down, I think, hopefully recording that podcast later today on Thursday. As always, talking about everything that's going on. And yeah, we appreciate you guys tuning in. This is a new thing for us, but it's been really fun. The feedback's been really great. And if you're looking for something to do lazily Sunday morning while you're doing dishes, having breakfast, getting out of bed, the podcast is a great choice. So maybe we'll see you then. Otherwise, have a good weekend. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kaback, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to readtangle.com and check out our website. Yeah.